What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm so glad that you are joining me today for this episode. On the last episode, we wrapped up a series about disciple-making movements. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, please go back to the previous three or four episodes. Today, we are starting a new series called Theology Thursdays. This is a series that airs inside the Discipleship.org Collective on, you guessed it, Thursdays. You're just so smart. Daniel McCoy, which is the Renew.org Editorial Director, and Renee Sproles, which is the Director of Cultural Engagement for Renew, they get together and interview different pastors and speakers and authors about various subjects. Today's episode, they speak with Dr. Tony Twist, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of TCM International Institute. Tony talks to us about how to do theology. This is an excellent episode. You're going to love it. So let's dive in. Here we go. Well, welcome to Theology Thursdays. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Daniel. I'm the editorial director for Renew.org. I'm Renee Sproles. I am the director of cultural engagement for Renew.org. And so we're going to be talking about God's big story today. We're going to be talking about kind of what is theology and how it relates to God's big story. And uh, so if you have questions, uh, you know, put those in the chat feature. Um, Also in the D.org collective, you can go to Renew.org's group page. You can join discussions on these topics. Uh, So starting out, we're just going to ask a really kind of I, I find it to be a fun question about ologies. So I'm going to put four ology words out there. And Renee, I want to know what you think is the most exciting of those four and what you think would be the most snoozeworthy of those four. Okay, ready? Okay, I'm ready. Microbiology, psychopathology, archaeology, technology. One more time. Microbiology, oh, psychopathology. You don't have to repeat them. Okay. <laughs> Archaeology. As the most most interesting. Most technology. Exciting. Yeah, technology may be second. But the first two? No. No, no. Okay. Now it's where do you think most for people, me? Where do you think most people put theology? You know? Oh, the towards the bottom. Technology. Bottom, bottom. Like it's bottom. for nerds, it's for brainiacs, it's for people who are boring. Like, yeah. I, I, yep, I, that's, that would be my answer as well, as far as most people. Um, yeah, so. Well, okay. So, but I honestly, I don't think theology is boring because we're having this discussion. Um, and I've really enjoyed preparing for this. So tell us, Daniel, what is theology and should we be intimidated by theology or bored by theology? It's a great question. Um, you know, it, it kind of depends really on, on what we mean by theology. Um, now, now, the word itself is just theos and ology. Now, theos meaning God, ology meaning like the study of or, or speaking about or thinking about. So it's really is thinking about God. And so in that sense, I think it's it's quite fascinating. Um, but what, what it really hinges on as to whether or not theology is really boring or really exciting and compelling would be if God really exists. And so either, I mean, if God exists, theology would be an umbrella term over all sorts of fascinating topics, like who are we as humans? Who did God create us to be? 
Uh, what's wrong with the world? How can the world, how can it be saved? Uh, where are things going in history? Where's history headed? Um, so in that sense, I think theology is fascinating, but a lot of people are going to look at theology, you know, maybe from more of a secular standpoint and see it as kind of a weird sub-discipline of maybe philosophy or kind of a strange sub-discipline of, of psychology. So in my opinion, you know, as, as a Christian, I believe that theology is fascinating because it really is the biggest ology out there and it encompasses so many important questions. Um, so should we be intimidated by it? Um, I, I kind of am a little intimidated by it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the main reason people think that it's an intimidating thing is because it seems like it's kind of a boring brainiac type uh, you know, it's just about getting smarter and, and proving that you're smart and that sort of thing. Uh, just kind of a mind game. Uh, but I think that the, the real reason why theology is a bit intimidating is that it's the kind of thing that we all do. Everybody does theology. Like we're already doing it from even when we were kids, we were doing theology from the kid who wonders if their dog is going to be in heaven when he dies all the way to the atheist who wonders, you know, how a good loving God could uh, allow suffering. Uh, we're all doing theology. And so that's billions of people on the planet who are all doing theology. And all, a lot of us can't be doing it well. And so that's why I think theology is actually quite uh, intimidating. But still, very I love that. Well, yeah, very exciting, because you're right, like, we're all doing it. It's kind of, um, it, it's a danger to think we're not doing it because we are doing it. And that means we can do it wrongly, especially if we don't realize we're doing it. So talk to us about some ways that we can go wrong when we're trying to do theology. Yeah. Um, I would say one of the ways that we can definitely go wrong when it comes to theology would be to just make it all about the brain. Um, what would you call like brainiac theology? Now, I mean, let's be clear, we, we definitely want to use our minds to their fullest capacity as we're doing theology, as we're thinking about God. Um, but if we reduce it to that, if we just make it all about, uh, you know, making our brains bigger, that, that's just so foreign from how the Bible treats the knowledge of God, as we're going to learn later in our interview with Tony Twist, um, which we'll get to in just a, just a few minutes. Um, you know, theology is a, is a full body contact engagement. Um, and so brainiac theology would be uh, not only a, a bad way of doing theology, but also probably the reason why a lot of people think theology is pretty boring, because it just seems like it's all about, you know, mental uh, games, that sort of thing. So that'd be one way of doing theology that I think is really, really dangerous, just making it about the brain, brainiac theology. Uh, the other would be, uh, the other extreme would be uh, brainwashed theology. And this, this would be a matter of already having an end goal in mind for your theology and then making the Bible fit to whatever that end goal is. Um, so an example of that brainwashed theology would be when I was doing my doctoral dissertation and I was reading uh, interfaith scholars. So these are people who are, they, they were Buddhist Christian interfaith scholars. These are people who wanted to uh, take Buddhism and take Christianity, which are about as different as you can get, and they wanted to bring them together in a synthesis that made for a, a peaceful world. Okay, so that was the end goal. They wanted to merge Buddhism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if that's the end goal, what do you have to do to the Bible to get there? All sorts of stuff. You know, there's that Greek myth about Procrustes with the bed that he either stretches you to fit 
or uh, or saws off your your feet if you're too long. Just make it fit that bed, and uh, that's what they had to do with Christianity. Uh, so in order to make Christianity fit Buddhism, we're talking about changing the definition of God to where He's a process. He's always changing to fit Buddhist cosmology. Um, you had to uh, get rid of Christian evangelism so that you're no longer trying to evangelize Buddhists, but rather you're changing, you're basically converting Christianity uh, to be more like Buddhism. Uh, you know, the, the soul, you have to get rid of the idea of an eternal soul. So brainwash theology, again, is, is having an end goal in mind and then just kind of fitting your theology to fit that end goal. And it's, it's a very dangerous approach as well. That's wild. That sounds, that is, that is wild. But, you know, I think we probably all are in danger of doing that um, in our own, in our own lives on like small scale, you know, with, with our preconceived notions or our cultural expectations. And we're chopping off the feet of Christianity, so to speak. Yikes. Yeah. A little bit convicting. So, okay. So let's talk about how to do theology. We had a great conversation with Tony Twist. Um, about this. And he, I think he will add a lot to this conversation about the right ways to do theology. I loved his perspective. It was a really helpful conversation. Yeah. About how to do in a way that isn't just about the mind, uh, but that is also completely faithful to Jesus. So yeah, I think you guys are going to really enjoy. We're going to play this video. Uh, It's an interview that the two of us did with, with Tony Twist. And do you want to kind of introduce who Tony is? Yeah. Yeah. You getting that pulled up? I'll do it. Yeah. So Tony grew up in Dallas, Texas, and in Alice Springs, Australia. His formal education included Milligan College, Emmanuel Christian Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary, and Indiana University. Following graduation from Milligan, he married Suzanne Grogan from Spencer, Virginia. He and Suzanne have served in churches in Virginia, Tennessee, and Indiana, with a primary focus on disciple-making. And his passions are disciple-making, spending time with Suzanne, working out and making new friends around the world. He currently serves as president and chief executive officer for the TCM International Institute, a global graduate school for disciple makers based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Austria. Many thanks to Tony for joining us. Yeah, pretty awesome stuff. And uh, as you'll notice when you first watch the video, um, I push record and then I realize it's recording. Didn't put two and two together. I realize it's recording and then you'll see this glorious smile uh, that I give when I realize it's recording. So here it is again, Tony is <laughs> talking about how to do theology. And he's going to talk about how looking at God's big story, uh, his grand meta narrative, that's the, that's the starting place to doing good theology. So here it is. Thank you for joining us, Tony. Uh, The first question I have for you is that a lot of us tend to think theology is mainly a head thing, but um, I've heard you say that theology is a full body contact engagement. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I agree with Dallas Willard when he talks about Jesus being very, very smart, really intelligent. And a lot of times, we can tend to think maybe we're just a little more clever than he is or a little bit smarter than he is. After all, he didn't have a PhD. But let's just assume that he's really smart. Why did he choose disciple making? I know that was rabbinical tradition and all of that, but let's just assume he had very smart reasons behind it. And I think it's because 
it's holistic. That sort of internship apprentice model is holistic and it involves head, heart, hands, feet, all the parts of us that in the great commandment say we're supposed to use in our response to God. So, so it's not just thinking about God or learning words about God. It's uh, engaging God with our heart, with, with our emotional intelligence and engaging him with our kinesthetic intelligence mm. and engaging him with all of our being. Because I believe as much love as he is and has, he wants to love us completely. And that's all of us. And we're spiritually, we are Semites. We're not Greeks and we're not Romans. We're not platonic idealists. We, we're not primarily about just, uh, just uh, going to some cloud in the sky someday and, or merging with some goodness up there with matter being all evil. We're about the resurrection of the body. We're going to eat and drink and party when we go home. There's a banquet. And so theology, something as important as theology, if it's just the head, it's way too small. Our God's bigger than that. And he wants us to be bigger than that because he loves us and we're his kids. And you want a lot for your children. And we'll rule and reign with him someday. So he's concerned that every bit of us is uh, engaged and matures and grows, not, not our minds only. And because of the, of the enlightenment and the, the very narrow definition of science, I mean, even, even to rationalism, uh, it, it, it's, it's just too limiting. Mm -hmm. There's more to us than that. And we dare not miss it because a father who loves us wants all of us to love him back and to know him. Yeah. That this that just makes my heart sing. I got to say, you know, as a mom, just finishing raising two children, you know, obedience is the thing. I mean, obedience yes. brings yes. its own understanding. Yes. Um, so I think sometimes I, I know I as an American, sometimes I think like, okay, I've gotten information. Mm -hmm. Now I'm good. Like, I know I'm supposed to exercise, but knowing I'm supposed to exercise and actually exercising are two very different things. And that's, yes. what, that's what I'm thinking about when you're describing this to me. It's like, it's a, it's, it's all of us. What we're talking about here. Theology is all of us. It's not just our brains. It's, it involves our submission. It involves our physical body obeying. It involves our will. It's so beautiful to me. We're all theologians. We're all theologians. Especially children. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. you, and I couldn't agree with you more because, because then we're healthier. Mm -hmm. 
and he wants us he wants us to be well mm-hmm. and and that takes um, obedience and and it, you know we just we leave out those words in the great commission to obey I, I'm, young man i'm discipling uh uh or uh, recently I, I i just came back with him and said quoted the great commission leaving out to obey and it's amazing how many times you do that and people don't notice just teaching everything i've commanded you oh yeah that's it and i'll say no 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 and if and we do in an information age and and you know get it done quick and all that but we can leave out exactly what we're supposed to be teaching and that's obedience mm-hmm. and yes. if we miss that we miss the difference between just playing mind games and living really living the way we're intended to yes no i'm reminded of the scripture you know knowledge puffs up but love builds up Mm -hmm. um so say i'm wanting to do theology and that means i'm going to be asking a lot of theological questions um but i've heard you say that before you get into that, you really need to get a, a good handle on God's grand meta narrative. Uh, what do you mean by God's grand meta narrative? Well, if we're going to do it right, we need to know who we really are. Hmm. And I don't think we believe it. Hmm. We, we, we just don't believe in it. And something that really helped me to believe it was coming to terms with losing three children. We had uh, three miscarriages and uh, it was it was tough and but the closer I get to home, the more I look forward to that uh, reconnecting. And I've often wondered what would I say to those children when I meet them for the first time and I think it would be something like, I've only just met you, but I have always loved you. Now, every parent will resonate with that statement. But if we analyze the statement, you, you know, uh, analytically, we would say, well, what are you, an idiot? How can you love someone you've never met? Well, that's just the nature of love. Love does stuff like that. Love takes all the all the fullness of the Godhead and puts it in a, a, a little connection between a sperm and an egg in a virgin's womb. And all of God somehow is in that. I don't know how, but I know love does things like that. And so we see this all throughout scripture, especially like in the first chapter of Ephesians that before the beginning of time we were loved in him we've always been loved somehow in god's calculation so why is it important because it goes to the essence of who who i am who we are i'm a beloved son that through this adoption process and redemption process somehow i've been given connection to my real history in the heart of god from all eternity 
and I will be loved by him for all eternity. And we see this, the, the, the story of this all through scripture, how it plays out, how he, he, he wanted children. And then he, then uh, he prepared everything for the children. The enemy, on the other hand, said, wait a minute. You want me to help you raise up little creatures of dirt that are going to somehow rule and reign over me someday? I'm out. And then the story we have of him lovingly wooing his children back all through Scripture, even to the point of our older brother dying for us. And then all the way through that story goes to the new heaven and the new earth. But the point is, it's not just it's not just a story. It is my story. I am part of this. I'm a son of Abraham. Uh, Jesus is my older, older brother. This is family. And I can only think of one thing that would motivate me to willingly go to the cross and be crucified. And that's family. It's family. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly why he did it. And it's powerful. And this is in us. We all have this, this God-shaped vacuum. We also have this homesickness for something that just isn't here. Mm -hmm. And we have, we have itches that never get scratched here. But they will. The itches are real. The longings are real. Mm -hmm. We just don't. We just, they're just not fulfilled here. They're not taken care of here. And so this, this grand meta narrative is everything because once this gets from my head into my heart and my hands and my feet, once it, once I realize who and whose I am and that he is always loved me, even before he met me, he loved me. Once I get that, I could, I, could, I could go to hell and back. Mm -hmm. You could go through anything because the, the, the family love that's in us. I mean, you hold a baby for the first time and you'd say, I'd give my life for this little lump of flesh. Well, you, you don't even know them yet. You don't know what their personality is. You don't, it's in us. Yeah. It's just in us. Yeah. And so we dare not sell it short. Doing theology isn't just doing philosophy. Hmm. It, it isn't just knowing about, about God or gods. It's personal. Hmm. It's knowing and being known. And on that day, the people that Jesus rejects, he will say, depart from me. I, I, I never knew you. Mm -hmm. We want to know and be known. It's real. It's relationship. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that, that from all eternity, I have been loved. And in all eternity, I will be loved. And then we will be loved. And this is my, when I go to scripture, it's my family album. The good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, everything there, all laid out but it's my family yeah. and it's Jesus lineage. 
it's my lineage and once it starts getting personal i mean even even the begots become interesting <laughs> it's ancestry.com on steroids and it, it mean this this means everything. It's it's not some empty philosophical exercise like the Greeks would do yeah. in Athens. This is this is family. And Let's, if we miss that, we 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 gut it. We miss the heart of everything. Well, I want you to drill down on that because I work with a lot of like 30 somethings. And I can say almost all of them have really bad family experiences. It's so mm -hmm. sad. They, almost all of them have um, brokenness in their family, even if their parents stayed together. And I've been pondering this a lot, this, this idea that, um, that it is family, like that we're so deeply loved that God's drawing us into his family. Can you talk about the power, um, the power of that, that the, um, the power of when you do theology, you're discovering a family album because it, it really does give hope to, um, well, it gives hope to all of us, but especially to those of us whose families are broken, whose, whose parents haven't yes. loved well. It's, it's an interesting angle and, and something I've just recently been thinking about. I read a story of a woman that had grown up in an abused, abused situation, had been abused by her father. And, she just she could not relate to the concept of God as her father. It just just couldn't. One day she was at the airport and there was a, a delegation waiting for someone to arrive. And she was curious. She went over and and asked, what what's what's this all about? And I said, well, there's a little girl coming from China and uh, this little girl has never met her parents. But uh, this is an exciting day. They finally are getting here. And she's, she's, I think she was four or five. And she's coming to meet them for the first time. And so they had the media there. And, and so this woman was curious. She was watching. And she sees this little girl get off an airplane and come running as fast as she can toward a man she had never met, saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And it was that simple thing that changed that woman's heart. And she realized, I have a father who's good and who loves me and would never hurt me. And it's as simple as just becoming like a little child, throwing my arms open wide and running to my father, no matter what the circumstances of my life. And, People that I've discipled or worked with that have father issues, that's what it takes. It takes at some point, uh, they, they come to the place where they say, this is the father I always wanted. And I say, this is the father you've always had. And once it just, a child can get it once we just we just open ourselves up the problem is that we don't get any credit for being so smart we think our way to this we just we accept this like that little girl just running arms out 
because you're so longing mm -hmm. for this father. Mm -hmm. it, it's just in us. Mm -hmm. He created us that way. Yeah. Why do you love your kids? It usually just boils down to one thing. Well, they're mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not that they're good. It's not that they're, all, you know, you know, I love them because they're mine. Why does he love us? Well, we're his. Mm -hmm. We have his DNA. We have royal blood in our veins. And that's why he loves us. Mm -hmm. So good. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so stories, you talked about family album, talked about the grand meta narrative. And so wh why is it that God gave us stories uh, more than giving us a rule book, more than giving us an answer book? He gave us a collection of stories. He gave us this grand meta narrative. Why do you think he chose stories? I think because he's really, really smart. <laughs> uh, he 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 uh, he would prefer the Hebrew way over the Greek or Roman way every day, and that is, you ask a rabbi what he believes, and he'll tell you a story. Mm. And story is powerful. You remember stories. I mean, you, you're a sermon. What do you remember? It's the stories. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's just something built into us. I I can't explain it. But uh, the power behind story uh, to, to draw us in, to teach us, and, and especially as Jesus, who was a, um, I'll tell you a quick story. <laughs> uh, when I first started working with TCM, we decided we wanted to, to uh, offer a class in New Testament preaching, where we just like started preaching. We taught preaching the way Jesus did it. And uh, so the, the professor who was trying to build that, and this was 25 years ago, trying to develop the syllabus and all that, he came back to me and he was like, you're not going to believe this. He said, I can't find hardly anything on Jesus as a preacher. I mean, it, lots of other stuff about it. But they're just, he couldn't find a lot of literature like on the preaching style of Jesus. And we, we really puzzled over that. I figured that, you know, there'd be all kinds of things written. And again, this was some time ago. There's much more now. But we tend to think in preaching that, you know, it's three points in a poem or it's all based on on uh, Aristotle's rhetoric or Quintilian or, and it's not, it, it, it's, it, and, but what God revealed in his word, he revealed through story. And I think for reasons we may not even totally understand about our own nature, mm -hmm. but because he created us, and I think he also maybe wanted to confound our wisdom. Hmm. And I think also he loves children. Hmm. And he wanted children to access the deepest truths about him and to grow up to love him. I mean, the point of everything, I believe, is that God, God wants lots of kids hmm. and that he loves children. So maybe that's part of it, too. He wanted to, to have a very simple way from the very beginning of, of their life. You know, you start with a little child and tell them stories and they'll say, 
yeah, well, tell me a story about, you know, I used to play games with children in youth ministry. And, and uh, I remember one time with a little girl named Katie. She always, I'm sorry, she said, tell me a story about Katie and the door. So mm -hmm. I'd tell her a story about Katie and the door. Tell me a story about Katie and the window. And I would tell her. <laughs> and, and there was something, the connectedness with that. Uh, there, there's just realities under it that we're probably not smart enough to even figure out, not knowing how God has created us. But Jesus, I believe, is the best of everything, and including the best communicator. And we, we would do well to, to imitate the way he taught. I was... Uh, I was invited to preach at a Messianic uh, Jewish church in Moscow, Russia, a number of years ago. And I was really kind of intimidated by it because I'd never been to a, a Messianic Jewish service. And one of our students who was uh, the, the uh, pastor of that, that uh, church. And so I, I had a whole sermon prepared and all of that. And I, I uh, middle of the night, I, I woke up and it, it was like God was just speaking to me and he said, just, just tell them stories. So I had just, the message was a story and I illustrated it with stories. <laughs> and at the end of the time, I mean, some of the women were crying and, and they were coming up and they were expressing their gratitude. And I just, I was so grateful that God had, had kind of nudged me that, that night just to scrap, you know, what I'd prepared and just tell a story by stories. And um, I, I think, you know, God's people, especially the Jewish, with Jewish blood in you and the way that they, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, their cult enculturation and, and their culture, I think is affected by all that. And I, and so I, 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 uh, I was just really glad that I that that happened that way because it uh, I think it resonated with those those messianic Jews in a way that you know my, my usual way of doing it wouldn't have done. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at Discipleship.org. It's our Discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So when we find ourselves in these stories, when we, when we see the big picture of the Bible, the grand meta narrative, as you say, 
how is that how does that shape us how do how does that help us i i think i've heard you say it i just want you to say it again before we close how does that help us to do theology well we as as i said earlier i mean there's there's more to us than than heads only mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and part of that more to us is that we have a grounding in a in a culture and what what i like to refer to as the culture of christ and that culture isn't just in this world the culture is out of this world it is the culture from which everything came and all of history is just a tiny blip in eternity but the culture is much much bigger than that and so we need to do theology from above mm -hmm. not just from below mm -hmm. we need to begin to see ourselves as a high priest or a high priestess we need to begin to see ourselves uh, that my little time on earth i'm just on a mission trip uh, I'm going to be going back home soon from whence I truly came, just like Jesus came, and now I'm in Christ, and that's my reality. So so this is this should be normal. Mm -hmm. Just normal. It's it, we're just so used to doing it from below. Uh -huh. We're not used to thinking, oh no my reality now that i'm in christ yeah goes back into the in, into all eternity mm -hmm. and so now i come from that place mm -hmm. and the the power of this is that uh, it's like eugene peterson called living in the middle voice you know there's the active voice where i initiate the action there's passive where it's initiated on me but in Greek, there's the middle voice where someone else initiates it and I join in. Mm. So living in the middle voice is saying, wow, really, my life was initiated an eternity a long time ago. And if I will pray the Lord's Prayer and mean it and align myself with honoring my father the way i should with doing his will and serving his kingdom and fighting evil and and caring about the little ones and if i if i really if i if i'm on mission here but realizing that it's just a short time and i know where i came from and where i'm headed it's if you have time read this first part of john 13 where before he washed the feet and it was the only time in scripture where he explicitly says i'm giving he said i'm giving you an example and we forget the first few verses there where it talks about about jesus knew that he'd come from the father that he was returning to the father he knew what the enemy was up to he knew that what time it was he knew all of these things it was all settled before he washed feet and we rush off into serving and then mess it all up because we're trying to figure out who we are or we're trying to figure out where we're going or where we came from or what time it is in the serving. Mm -hmm. 
And so we manipulate people and we, you know, we do harm. Mm -hmm. But by living in this way, God, who created space and time, God could actually put behind my action, oh, maybe 10,000 years of preparation time and turn every chronos moment into a kairos moment. If we know who we are and why we're here and we align ourselves in the center of God's will to obey, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we put ourselves as, as disciple makers in the center of God's will, there can be power mm -hmm. behind what we're doing and so we could go through the exact same motions as the person next to us all through life and have unbelievable fruit and power simply by how we align ourselves and simply we take seriously the Great Commission, teaching them to obey, because that puts us in a position where the harvest is great. I'm just here. I'm just here cleaning up. But God's done all this other stuff way ahead of me. I just let him align me with it. And life becomes interesting. It becomes fun. Yeah. You become alive like Jesus. What you do is a lot, so much smarter than what you would have thought of. Yeah. And you delight in giving him all the glory. You, you, you don't have to like steal some of the glory because you're doing it to try to prove to yourself how smart you are mm -hmm. or how good you are. Mm -hmm. And it, it just makes all the difference. This grand meta narrative, when it's my story and it's in my guts, it's, it's, it's flowing through my veins. It's who I am. Uh, it's fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Life's interesting. Yeah. And that's, he, he came that we might have life. Yeah. And I think that's part of what it means, mm -hmm. even for theologians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's putting first things first. It's it's first things first. Kind of clarify. It's so clarifying what you're describing. And, and it's your identity is not within yourself. All the good things you can do. Your identity is this beloved child. And now you're just joining. Like you said, you're just aligning yourself. You're just joining right in. It's so freeing. It really is the best news out there. But we, I think we just get distracted and, and kind of just, I don't know. I'm thinking about my own life, just kind of busy, distracted. And, and it's, it's really the best news. It's beautiful news. It, it is. It is. And I was having this discussion with a young man just, just the other night. And when we get to the place where we kind of get an idea, not only of what God saved me to, but all that he saved me from. Mm -hmm. And we realize all the hurt and harm that we would have done mm -hmm. had he not been nudging me and saving me as I, as I went along. Then, then my ethics all become gratitude ethics. Mm -hmm. I just say, oh, Father, it's just the highest honor and privilege to serve you. And thank you. And all glory goes to you just because it just does. <laughs>
Good stuff. Thank you so much, Tony. Uh, yes, thank you. And I, I just think it's given us the tools mm -hmm. to where we can really start doing theology well, mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to do it from a perspective of I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going all because of God's story. And therefore, I can do it in a way that honors him and is so much less about a smart person trying to prove something about himself and so much more about the childlike kid who's able just to flip through the family album and say, isn't this great that I'm a part? Uh, so Tony, you know, Daniel, I, I believe with all my heart, God has a sense of humor. Yeah. I mean, just look at some of the people he made. He's got a sense of humor. And I think part of that humor is, you know, I'm gonna confound those doctors as smart mm -hmm. by having little kids understand things that, that they can't hit. And, and you saw that, see that with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're scratching their heads when Jesus is telling them stories that little children could probably figure out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's part of God's, uh, I don't know if he has a mischievousness about him, but a, a sense of humor. God has to have some Irish in him. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. So, Tony, thank you again. Thank you so much. Good to be with you all. <laughs> and don't forget to come to Renew this fall. Yes. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> all right. Great conversation. Renee, what was it one was. of your what, what, what would you say was your biggest takeaway from that? Um, oh, just one that's hard to pick. Um, I do. I did make some notes on from several of his answers. For me, the idea that um, theology is holistic, that it's our head, our hearts, our hands, our feet. Um, I love his little phrase. He said, um, it's the idea of mind games versus living. Mm -hmm. I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I think as we talked about in the interview, I think a lot of times in my life, I've thought once I have information, that was good enough. And it's actually just the beginning. I mean, I want good information. I love to study, but um, it's it really is tied to your obedience. You know, it's... Um, then he also said, um, it's not a story, it's my story. And when he was talking about the grand meta narrative and that um, theology is personal, it's knowing God and being known. It's not knowing about God. I mean, that's a step in the process, but it's knowing God. It's a relationship with God. And um, again, it's just, it, it makes it so much more exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, to, that, the idea that you can know God, you be known by God. And that Jesus's family is my family. All that Hebrews eleven, all those amazing people, like those are my people. Mm -hmm. That's that's really encouraging. I mean, especially as I said, in an age of broken families, it's such a beautiful story. Totally. And then, do you want me to keep going? I've got a couple more. Yeah, how about one more? <laughs> and then we got to get to the really exciting part, and that is the video that we made for this on. Oh yeah. Grand meta narrative is. And I yes. Love this yes. How about one more? In the yeah. Uh, All right. This video is great. And so um, I guess I'll say that um, that the grand meta narrative leads to good theology because it 
it reminds us that we have a culture of Christ, like an eternal culture, which I think this video will speak to that mm-hmm. you're, you're putting, it's giving you this amazing big perspective that is really clarifying. As we talked about in the video, it just pulls you out of your everyday drudgery, just getting too, too busy and, and like says, wow, open your eyes. Look at this mist of a life you've been given and, and put it in the scope of all eternity. Mm-hmm. So to me, I thought that was very helpful. Yeah. And, and I'd like, as a preface to this video, I'd like to go back to what Tony said, and that is that Jesus is very, very smart. And when you take, when you look at the whole story of, of mm-hmm. scripture, you take a step back, like, wow, look at the, look at the design, look at the symmetry. Mm-hmm. It really is fascinating. Yeah. So this video, I yeah. think does a really good job of showing that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and share the screen again. The Bible and collection of 66 books filled with hundreds of stories and poems and prophecies. How do we wrap our minds around such a large, complex collection? Although the Bible seems massive and complicated, when you zoom out, you see that the Bible tells one main story throughout its books. We can call this the Bible's grand storyline or God's grand meta-narrative. Interestingly, the major points of this storyline show parallels with each other. When you line up these major points of the story, you can see symmetry. The Bible begins in a garden. God creates humans and places them in a beautiful garden with a tree of life so that they can live forever. In the garden, the humans experience peace with God and with each other. That is, until a serpent enters the garden. The serpent convinces the humans that they can't trust God. The humans follow the serpent's advice and rebel against God. God casts the humans out of the garden where they scatter throughout the earth. Yet God still loves the humans and wants to restore relationship with them. Therefore, God calls a man named Abram and says that through Abram and his offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. As the family grows, however, they face difficulties. For centuries, the Hebrews are horribly mistreated as slaves in Egypt. The Egyptian Pharaoh orders their baby boys to be thrown into the Nile. God sets out to rescue them from slavery by pounding Egypt with a series of plagues. Still, Pharaoh will not release his slaves. This is when God's wrath goes through the nation, destroying the firstborn sons of Egypt. The exception is those households who obey God's instructions by killing a lamb and spreading the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. For those houses covered in the lamb's blood, God's wrath passes over and they are saved. After rescuing them from slavery, God builds the Hebrews into a community to follow his commandments and be a light to the rest of the nations. This community enters into a covenant, a sacred promise with God that they will be his people and follow his commands. God leads this community into their own promised land. When the people are settled, he establishes them into a kingdom. One of the kings builds a temple to God in order to be a place where people from all over the world can come to connect with God. Over time, the kingdom weakens as it splits into north and south and as the leaders of both nations follow other gods. 
Although God sends them prophets to encourage them to return to him, both north and south reject God and break the covenant they had established with God. As a result of the broken covenant, their temple is destroyed, their kingdom is disbanded, and their community is scattered all over the other nations. The broken covenant is the low point of the grand storyline. Yet the God of the Bible likes to restore and renew. He makes it possible for the Hebrews to return to their promised land, where they rebuild their temple. Then God sends someone who announces that the kingdom is back. The man's name is Jesus, and his message is, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus gathers disciples together who become a new community. This new community follows Jesus' commands and imitates his example as he teaches the truth and loves everyone. Jesus teaches the new community that when we sin, we become slaves to sin. And because of our sin, the wrath of God comes upon us. Yet Jesus has come to rescue us from our slavery to sin and to save us from the wrath of God upon our sin. How does Jesus rescue us from slavery and save us from wrath? He does this by his own sacrifice on the cross. Jesus becomes the lamb who covers us in his own blood so that the wrath of God passes over us and we are saved. After dying on the cross, Jesus doesn't stay dead. He rises from the dead and then issues a call to his community, much like God's call to Abram centuries earlier. Jesus' call was for his community to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The final book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we see reality through heaven's perspective. And one of the themes of Revelation is that the serpent is back. He is now more than a garden serpent. He is a dragon intent on stopping the spread of the gospel by intimidating Jesus' followers. Yet, by the end of Revelation, the serpent is destroyed, and the Bible ends the way it begins, in a garden. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, had begun with the creation of the heavens and the earth. The final book, Revelation, ends with the new heavens and new earth. And the new heavens and new earth are pictured as a garden, complete with a tree of life. It is a paradise in which we followers of Jesus are the forever family of God, dwelling in peace with God and with each other forever. Good stuff. There we go. Good stuff. Um, so this is a great time. If anyone has any questions to put it in the chat, uh, anything you want us to expound mm -hmm. on. Um, but it is just really nice to be able to take a step back and look at what God has done and be able to place ourselves in it. Um, so, uh, so Renee, could you speak a little bit on, you know, the power of stories in your life? Um, Tony had talked about that a bit that, you know, Jesus is just very smart. He knows what really connects mm -hmm. with us and that it's, mm -hmm. it's not just, uh, a matter of, of principles or rules or or insights, but it's stories that really connect. And so, so what has been the power of stories in your life? Could you give maybe an example of that? 
Sure. So this was a, this is a cool question. It was cool to think about, um, just to, what's my favorite story. It's hard to pick. Cause like, I love the woman who like pounds the tent peg through the guy's head. Like mm. that's, that's actually really inspiring, but, and so <laughs> courageous and brave, but I didn't pick that one. I, um, I thought I would um, talk about the prodigal son sons, actually mm. prodigal sons. Um, because it's a story that helped me really understand what the gospel is. So it helped me understand who God is because, um, like a Middle Eastern man, um, you know, has lots of dignity and men don't run. Um, and they left to lift their, their Mm -hmm. robes up to, to run and you don't show your legs. And so in this story where the father comes running after the son who's rebelled, it's such a beautiful picture. Um, some commentators say that, you know, children run, women run, but men didn't run. And so it was expanding. Um, Jesus was expanding our view of who God is. He's not only powerful. He's not only sovereign. He loves you so much that um, he would run after you. And then he also offers love to the disrespectful older brother. You know, when the, at the end of the story where the brother's like, look, you know, here I am. I've been obeying all the, all the time. Like that was seriously disrespectful <laughs> to address your father in that way, in that culture. And, so, and yet he pulls him aside and, um, and tries to bring him in as well. It also helped me understand sin because, um, we're all broken in lots of different ways. So I'm the traditionalist rule follower. So I can really empathize with that older son. Like, Hey, I've been here doing all the right things. Mm -hmm. And what you done for me lately. And, yeah. but then there's, there's people who are like the younger son who are like, you know, fly in the face of all the rules. They're all into self discovery and, mm -hmm. um, and they're rebels, but we're both broken and we're both coming at God in completely wrong ways that won't do. And then it talks about salvation, how um, the offer of the robe to the younger brother before he's cleaned up. So, so, so beautiful. It's not like, get yourself together. You know, the younger brother comes with a plan. Okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to go work an apprentice and I can help, you know, pay back what you gave me. And God's like, no, no, we're not doing that. And then he brings the, the um, older brother who should have sought the younger brother in the first place. Um, and didn't, he brings the um, older brother aside and he says, you know what? Everything I have is yours, but come and sit down at the feast with us. And so the offer is for all of us, um, whether we're rebels or whether we're rule followers, neither of those will do. It has to be init the initiating love of God um, to save us. And so, yeah, that's why I love that story. Also, because I didn't understand it for like 30 years. And I was like, yeah, what's wrong with that older brother? He seems really good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we one or the other, don't we? And it's yeah. so helpful because it's like you can take a lot of principles from that story. God loves you; He forgives you. Um, but but when it's really couched in a story that we can we can internalize, yeah, like, well, it really hits us in a much deeper at a much deeper level. So we're we're nearing the end of our time, and I just want to uh, talk for just a moment about what the next few weeks are going to look like. Today, obviously, was. Here's what theology is, and here's how we can start it by kind of finding our place in God's grand meta narrative, uh, finding our identity, knowing where we're from, who we are, whose we are, where we're going, and then and then now being able to take uh, the next steps and, and really tackle some of these big rocks, some of these uh, tough questions about theology. 
So, um, what what are uh, what are a couple of the upcoming weeks, uh, Renee? What are, what are you looking forward to? Okay, so we're gonna talk about God's reliable Word, which I love talking about Scripture. Um, mm -hmm. We're gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. Like I love talking about the Holy Spirit as well because those two go hand in hand. The Spirit helps us understand. Uh, what we're reading in scripture. Um, we're going to talk with, was it Chad Ragsdale that we were talking with about um, the essential, important, and personal doctrines? Well, so helpful because right Super now, helpful. Yeah, there's so many hills that we could die on. And so we need to mm -hmm. figure out what are the hills that the Christians really should be okay with dying on? What's in, what's essential? What's important? What's personal? That's going to be really helpful. Yeah, we're going to talk about sin. Got to talk about sin. Got to yep. hear the bad news before you hear the good news. We're going to talk about um, the gospel, which is one of my favorite interviews. That's fabulous, super. fabulous interview. And um, Bates. and then how it, yeah, Matthew Bates, and um, and then how it all ends. You know, yeah. es eschatology in times. You know, is yeah. it Kirk Cameron or something else? Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm, it's not Kirk Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it is so helpful as we're going through this to remember that theology is not a matter of who's the smartest in the room and, and who, right. um, you know, how, how can I come up with some theological insight that's going to impress people. Rather, it really is a matter of you and me and all, all who are joining us looking through our family album and saying, man, isn't this cool? Isn't it great that we get to be a part? So thank you all for joining us. Uh, it, is, it is time to go. So we'll see you next week on Theology Thursday. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode guys i hope that you enjoyed it please click next to hear the next one it'll also be continuing this new series called theology thursdays and i just want to remind you if this is your first time listening to an episode of the disciple makers podcast we are hosting a national disciple making forum in nashville tennessee november 4th and 5th and you're not going to want to miss it it's going to be an incredible time go to discipleship.org today to purchase your tickets all right y'all have a great day